Hi, Beck Girl here today with Dr. Jane Quant, who's a double board certified anesthesiologist and emergency critical care specialist at University of Georgia. Dr. Quant, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. So I saw you just had a publication in September of 2016 in the Journal of Veterinary Emergency Critical Care called A Survey of the Use of Arterial Catheters, or what we call A-lines, in Anesthetized Dogs and Cats. And I just wanted to see if I could pick your brain about some of the results of the study. First of all, do you mind just giving us a little bit of information about what your goals or objectives of this study were? Yes. So what we were trying to do is how easy is it to get arterial catheters in animals? And is there any potential side effects from having that arterial catheter placed? So we actually had anesthesiologists check the site where the catheter was placed after the catheter was removed. So the next day, we went in that morning and looked at the leg or the tail or wherever that catheter was placed to see if there was any potential adverse effects from the placement of an arterial catheter. And I know in academia, a lot of times in anesthesia, you do use arterial lines or A-lines. Do you mind just talking about some of the pros and cons of using them? And should we be using them more in specialty practices or emergency practices? I know most general practitioners won't be doing it, but if you could just touch on that, that'd be great. Yes. I mean, for the majority of really healthy patients, for example, we do a lot of TPLOs, and those sorts of individual cases, we don't do an arterial catheter. The indirect Doppler oscillometric is fine. But because we're a tertiary referral center and we see the more difficult and ill patients, an arterial line is the gold standard by which the blood pressure is measured. A lot of times, the indirect methods may not work well. If the dog is in shock or cold, they just refuse to read correctly. Whereas with an arterial catheter, you can get a beat to beat, every time the heart beats, you're going to get a blood pressure. And if they're extremely low, you can actually monitor them much quicker and cleaner than waiting for the oscillometric to work or the Doppler to work. So for example, a GDV, a splenectomy that has a hemangiosarcoma, we suspect on the spleen, any foreign body, especially if we think there might be a potential for a shock, i.e. it's ruptured, it's endotoxic, all of those patients deserve arterial catheters because those patients are probably going to be on inotropes, vasopressors, or a combination thereof. And we need to know how successful our treatment is or isn't. And then into recovery, we keep that arterial catheter in place so when they go to the ICU and as they recover, we can accurately determine, okay, now their pressure is better. Now we can start to back off on the inotrope. Now we can start to back off on the vasopressor, where I think with an indirect method, there's too much of a lag time and we might miss some of the more critical components of monitoring those blood pressures. So what are some of the potential complications we can see from having an A-line placed? So the first complication is you just can't get it in. Some of these patients are either too small, too vasoconstricted, or they're so hypotensive already, you just physically can't get an arterial catheter in. So a complication is you don't get good blood pressure measurement. Sometimes it takes a while to get the catheter in, so you have to weigh how long should it take to try to put that catheter in, or do I just, hey, I can't do it, I'm going to go with indirect as best I can and move along just to get the surgery done quicker and not have the patient anesthetized for too long a time just to try to get that monitoring equipment in place. The other concern is, is there any potential for infection? So there can be. So when we put arterial catheters in, we always clip and scrub, and we do a three-set scrub like we would for a surgical procedure. The other question is, can it cause some clotting? Can there be some, you know, 
obscuring of that blood vessel, and potentially in some of the smaller patients, that is a possibility. Dogs have good collateral circulation, so they can tolerate arterial catheters much better than, say, cats or dogs that are little, tiny dogs. If the paper didn't show up, but anecdotally, we've had a few cats, three that I'm familiar with, that had arterial catheters placed in their tail, and they developed ischemia injury on their tail and sloughed some of the tips of their tail. So I do cats. I limit the amount of time the arterial catheter is in place to no more than six to eight hours because they can't seem to have the collateral circulation that a dog does. And I also worry about the really teeny dogs, like say a little Maltese, something of that nature, again, because that catheter can potentially occlude that artery. I always neurotically also worry about if for some reason somebody's not monitoring that patient well and that catheter or the tubing becomes disconnected, the risk that that patient can develop severe bleeding from the A-line. Have you ever clinically seen that happen? Yeah, so they can potentially bleed out. So yes, they can have uh, severe blood loss. So one of the things when we have A-lines in you know, you have to flush them, you have to look at them periodically, make sure you have a good, strong waveform. If you don't have a good waveform, you know, is the patient really hypotensive, or you look, make sure it's still connected, right? As you said, they could have a bleeding out problem. The other concern is if we have a catheter that's not well labeled, does someone think it's a venous catheter and inadvertently put like an antibiotic or narcotic or something like that intra-arterially? So here, what we try to do to avoid that is we have a teal-colored vet wrap that only is used for arterial catheters. So everyone in the hospital knows if you see a teal wrap catheter, it's an arterial catheter. So that's just been a hospital-wide thing to help avoid the potential of inadvertent injection through that arterial catheter of something besides saline. Great useful information. Thank you. So I understand the study that you did was a prospective clinical study in combination with a retrospective evaluation of medical records. And it looks like you evaluated 251 dogs and 13 cats. And of these dogs and cats that had these A-lines placed, what percentage of complications did you end up seeing? Was it frequent? Were they minor? Is it worth putting in an A-line, or what complications should we potentially discuss with pet owners? Actually, they were relatively minor complications. All the dogs did quite well. We did not see any overt infections in any of the catheters. We had a few that the next day we couldn't get a good peripheral pulse, but there was no sloughing or ischemia on any of the dogs. So I do think it's worth putting a catheter in because of the information it gets you. Uh, a few of them had little knots, you know, on their, where we put the catheter um, sub-Q, they resolved. We did not see any skin or blood infections from them. The only thing, like I said, I would just be cautious with cats as to how long you left the arterial catheter in place. Wonderful. Any other tidbits from this study that we should be aware of? Well, I think most people are used to putting an arterial catheter in the dorsal pedal artery, which is in the rear foot. And what we found, especially for stubby-legged dogs like dachshunds or basset hounds, that the tail artery, the coccygeal artery, actually is really a nice artery to use. So you lay the dog on his back, and then the tail is like straight out behind him. And it's relatively easy to get that arterial catheter into the tail. And it's also an easy catheterization in the cat. Sometimes you just can't get an art line in the cat's leg, but 
the tail works pretty well. So I think people don't realize that there are alternatives to the dorsopedal artery, and the tail is the second most common one that we use here. Great information. Thank you. Now, for general practitioners or veterinarians who may not have access to A-lines, if you're going to encourage them to have one type of monitoring, and specifically for blood pressure, what type of device would you recommend alternatively to the A-line? So would you prefer Doppler or oscillometric, or what's your preference? I think they both have their advantages. We use both here. I mean, the oscillometric is nice because it can be set up to run automatically. It will give you a mean, a systolic, a diastolic, and a heart rate. So the convenience factor is is very high. The Doppler, obviously, you have to do that manually. It only gives you the one value, the systolic, and then you'd have to count the heart rate from it. The advantage to the Doppler, it's cheaper. The other thing is I've had it work at lower blood pressures than the oscillometric will calculate. I think it's just a little bit more. Now, whether they're completely believable, that's questionable. But I've had Dopplers work where the oscillometric would not. The only other advantage, I think, to a Doppler is if you're doing exotics or really tiny patients, sometimes the oscillometric cuff is just too big. And you may not get a blood pressure, but you can take that Doppler probe. For example, if I'm doing a bird, I can put that Doppler probe on the roof of the bird's mouth and actually get a heart rate, where obviously I couldn't do that with an oscillometric. Or I've had like reptiles. How do we know anything about a reptile? I can tape that Doppler you know, probe onto the heart and at least hear something. So it may be a little more user-friendly in some of the more exotic species. Or I've had like a really tiny kitten that, again, I could just tape the Doppler probe over the heart. At least I could hear something and have an idea of how the cardiac function was going. Great information. And while we're talking about the topic of monitoring for hypotension under anesthesia, do you mind just leaving us with a couple of clinical vignettes of how concerned you become with what quote-unquote number before you start to adjust your treatment for the anesthetized patient? In other words, how low of a either mean arterial pressure or systolic do you start to become concerned? And what are your top three tips for being able to treat that? Is it a fluid bolus? Is it turning down the inhalant? Or what is your preference in terms of managing that hypertension? Well, I think part of it depends a little bit on the patient and what drugs they've had. So I have a really strong, healthy young dog that's got some ACE promazine for a pre-med. We know that drug causes a little vasodilatation and there may be some hypotension, but he probably has excellent perfusion. Ultimately, it all comes down to how well perfused the patient is. So if I have a strong, young, healthy dog, he's gotten acepromazine as part of his pre-med, and his mean blood pressure is 65, you know, a little bit in the 60 range, I think that's probably fine. I'm not too worried about it. Now, if it's a really sick animal, has some sepsis, some hypovolemia because he's in shock, I'd really like the mean to be, you know, 68 or 70. 60 is the bare minimum that we would accept for renal perfusion. We want it higher than that. So ultimately, I would like 68 or 70 and even a little bit higher if I could. So depending on how healthy the patient is to start with, my first option is always to turn down the inhalant if possible. The inhalants are great vasodilators and great at creating hypotension. So can I turn that down? Potentially a fluid bolus if the patient can tolerate it, i.e. doesn't have heart disease like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or dilated cardiomyopathy. 
And you have to have a limit in your mind as to how many fluid boluses you're going to give. I usually think about two, and that's a crystalloid bolus. I'm usually thinking five mils per kilo at that bolus. If I've given two fluid boluses and it's not working, I have to move on to something else. There's controversy. Should we be giving colloids as a fluid bolus? Again, it depends on the patient. If I feel they are hypotense because they're not maintaining vascular volume, I will give them a crystalloid bolus and then a colloid bolus to help hold it into the vascular space. My colloid bolus usually is two mils per kilo. I may give two of those. And then if nothing else is working, I've turned him down, I've given a volume bolus, then I will think about an inotrope or a vasopressor. If they're extremely ill, for example, if the dog that has a perforated small intestine, he's probably going to need all three things at once. I need to give him fluids, I need to have a low level of inhalant, and I need to start on an inotrope or vasopressor right out at the beginning. Awesome advice, Dr. Quant. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you taking the time to join us for the Svet Girl podcast today. And again, hopefully we'll see you at a future webinar or podcast, Dr. Quant. Thank you very much.